Welcome to the Thriving Wellness Podcast, where we encourage and empower everyone to live their lives up to their true potential and share valuable conversations that are translated into action steps for the lifestyle that makes you thrive. Here are your hosts, Ryan and AJ. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Thriving Wellness Podcast. This is your host, Ryan, and I'm super excited for today's show where we're going to be discussing how to overcome back pain and live a pain-free life because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. You see, in today's modern world, the majority of people have really lost connection to proper biomechanics and the physical functioning of their bodies. As a result, so many individuals are suffering from chronic pain and dis- dysfunction, and, and yet rather than trying to correct the structural issue at the root cause of this, many folks fall into the trap of masking their symptoms with pain medication and other means just to get through their day. The amazing thing is that physical dysfunction is reversible, and with the right lifestyle practices, you can improve your posture and ultimately suffer from much less musculoskeletal pain. I'm really excited to be joined today by Esther Gokhale, who is the creator of the Gokhale Method, a unique systematic approach to help people find their bodies way back to pain-free living. Esther is the author of the book, Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back, which has sold over 100,000 copies and has been translated into eight languages. In 2010, she hosted the nationally televised program, Back Pain the primal posture solution. She's taught at corporations including Google, Facebook, and many others, and she's also been a speaker at many conferences, including TEDx. So Esther, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. You people have a cousin philosophy, so it's a particularly uh, suitable group of people to be chatting with. I'd love to start by diving into your backstory. What, What got you interested in the field of posture and proper biomechanics? Well, I came at it the hard way, like many people come at their passions. I had a series of back pain episodes in college. And then when it really hit me hard was in the first pregnancy. So at at month nine, I had a horrendous problem. I had a herniated L5-S1 disc. And then I had sciatic pain shooting down my left leg. And I was told, maybe the baby is sitting on a nerve and it'll be okay after childbirth. It wasn't. It got, just got worse and worse and worse. And it got to a point where I couldn't carry my baby. I couldn't even carry a cooking pot. My mother-in-law had to come in and bail us out and help out. And I was in very bad shape. I wasn't able to sleep through the night. Every two hours, I would wake up in back spasm and have to walk around the neighborhood to relieve the back spasm. It was just a mess. And I was trying all sorts of things. I was trying the usual conservative approaches, physical therapy, strengthening exercises. And I was also trying complementary medicine, acupuncture, massage, me checking my head. Um, you know, you second guess yourself when in your 20s, you're facing such a huge problem. Um, and nothing was helping, nothing was working, and ended up with uh, back surgery, laminectomy, discectomy, which I didn't go to easily. You know, I was worried about it. It was, wasn't my style. I'd never been sick, and I certainly wasn't into heavy-duty in- interventions. But you know, I was I was in miserable shape. And then after the surgery, which helped for a period. A year later, I had a re-herniation of the same disc, and they were proposing another surgery. So here I am in my mid-20s, 
always thought of myself as super healthy. I was a yoga model in Bombay. And now suddenly I'm facing life as a cripple, you know, and I was told, don't have any more children. You have a week back, you have bulging discs. So it wasn't till I looked at the whole problem very differently that I got a solution. Wow. That's a powerful story. So what led you to believe that posture was really the solution to your back pain? Well, it was my personal experience. So I had tried all these interventions, which are more or less like Band-Aids. You know, I hadn't done pain meds, but I, you know, things like acupuncture, or um, which helped relieve symptoms for a while, but then I, it wasn't getting to the root of the problem. And it wasn't till I tried methodologies that really address the way you move and the way your spine is structured that I found sustained relief. Yeah. So that was the original thing that made me realize that posture and the way I was using my body uh, was really a key part of the puzzle of the solution. And it also made sense to me, like it never made sense to me that we should be so poorly designed that we would be falling apart, you know, in, in our 20s or 30s or 40s or um, really in a major way anytime during our lifestyle. That just didn't, doesn't make sense. And, you know, and I'd also grown up in India and I'd seen people who carry very large loads selling their wares or um, doing construction work. And I had seen that these people fare very, very well under impressive challenges. And so that had registered. My mother actually would point these people out, would say, you know, like the sweeper in our home or the, the fruit seller. She would always marvel at how amazing their carriage was and how functional they were. And so that had registered from my childhood. So it made sense that there was something, some systematic error in the way I was using my body. And then I started delving into the um, medical literature, into anthropological and historical data, and finding uh, emphasis, finding uh, proof and suggestion that there is something different about cultures, pre-industrial cultures, non-industrial cultures, and how they're using their bodies, the shape of their spines, and so on. Yeah, I find that a lot of folks underestimate the importance of posture. And I studied kinesiology and biomechanics in my undergrad. And so once I became aware of this, you start to analyze how people move and how they stand up. And it's something that's almost subconscious. People don't take it into consideration and don't identify it as a, as a possible culprit for some of their dysfunction and some of their pain. So I'm wondering, how, how does posture affect one's overall health? Because I know it has a lot of underlying uh, characteristics that carry forward into how other parts of your body and even your mind will operate. Yes. So the most obvious repercussions are on our nuts and bolts, you know, our joints and muscles and bones. And that totally makes sense. You know, it's a, it's a, the human body has uh, components that need 
to be used in a certain way. And if they're you misused, that there would be wear and tear. So that's logical. But one step away from that is how it affects your physiology. And once you realize that when you change your bony structure, your musculoskeletal system, you're also influencing the way your organs orient, the volume that you give your orient, uh, your organs, as well as the blood supply and nerve supply to all your organs. It makes sense that it would also affect your physiology, your circulation, your breathing, and the function of your organs. And then what's more recent in the literature is all the connection that posture has with emotional well-being. Increasingly, there's studies showing a connection between posture and depression or posture and confidence and mindset. And it's not so shocking either if we think about the animal case, you know, the way we know how an animal is feeling. For example, a dog is by observing its posture. If it has its tail between its legs, and the equivalent in the human animal is a tucked pelvis, interestingly, then we know that that dog is depressed, submissive, fearful. If that dog has its head high and is very erect and has its tail out behind him, equivalent in the animal world is up, then we know that that dog is happy. That dog is alive and well. Um, and so it turns out that, not surprisingly, in the human animal as well, there is a correlation between mental health, mind state, wellness, and posture. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I've even seen research showing that for men who stand up straight and have good posture, it could even improve testosterone levels. Something as simple as how you're standing and, and positioning yourself. And so I find that really, really fascinating. And as you mentioned, it is a really big nonverbal cue. When you see someone slouched over, you could kind of tell they're, they're maybe down or upset about something. And when you see someone standing up straight, shoulders back with great posture, it almost makes it seem like they have more energy, they're happier, they have more vitality. And so it's a really interesting thing. So it's not only, not only looks that way, it is that way, it turns out. They do have more energy. They are, have more vitality. The research is beginning to show this. And people in our culture, in modern times, are not very trained to read these cues. You know, we don't recognize them in a, a formal way. But we subconsciously pick it up. Like, you know, and sometimes our students will come back with reports on their friend, ask them if they had lost weight or if they had changed their hair, you know, so they recognize something's different. They don't identify it as a postural change, but so they're trying to identify it in some, in some other way. So that's an interesting um, Thing. And there's a whole science on this. There's a book called Emotional Contagion, in which the claim is that when you have uh, mind shifts, they register in your body. And then human beings being mimics, you know, it's monkey see, monkey do for us. Um, we copy body cues, we copy each other's posture. And then 
the way this loop gets um, completed is that when we scan our own bodies for cues on how we're feeling, it turns out that we're not very good at knowing how we are feeling. And one of the ways we figure it out is we scan our bodies for cues. So if, for example, we find our mouth in a grimace in the shape of a smile, we conclude that we must be happy, and then that in turn elevates mood. And it's similar for body posture. So we scan our bodies, and if we find more confident, happy posture, we conclude that we must be happy, and then we become happy. Um, so, so, it, it's, so that's how this contagion happens, this emotional contagion. And I think it explains why we sometimes experience people as having good vibes or bad vibes. You know, it's, we can't quite identify the pathway, but there is a scientifically demonstrated pathway that includes mindset, registering as posture, getting picked up by other people who are copying our posture and their minds then identifying the corresponding posture and picking up the corresponding mood or mind state. So you visited many parts of the world in your research, and I'm hoping you could share with the audience how common is back pain here in the United States versus in other countries that you visited? Is it as prevalent as it is here, or is it a more of a rare occurrence in other parts of the world? Well, it's a changing landscape. So in modern Western cultures, it's been a while now that we've suffered hugely from musculoskeletal problems, back pain being the leading problem. But that is now becoming the case in other cultures as they get urbanized, westernized, industrialized. And what's particularly sad is that in cultures where they may start off as village cultures, non-industrial cultures, who have much, much lower back pain rates, like 5% in some cultures historically. But as they get industrialized, it not only goes south, but it goes south worse than what we have here in the Western world, if you can imagine that. And that is a really sad and interesting phenomenon. And I think it's something that Weston Price saw as well. Like he Absolutely. saw when people went from village cultures and they went off to the cities and they were eating refined food and so on, they were in particularly bad shape because, and I conjecture that this is because when these non-industrial cultures in become industrialized and take on Western ways, they're taking on the worst of Western ways without the half-baked solutions that we have that are things like taking a day off, workman's comp, um, Advil, you know, this is like in, in these non-industrial cultures, if you now lose your way, you don't have all the buffer that we've developed in modern Western societies. You know, here, if you have a back pain, you can take a day off, you can change your job, you can, you know, there are all sorts of hacks and semi-solutions that we have to assuage the problem. But in these cultures, when they are sent into the gold mines or they're forced into concrete factories to carry 
inordinate loads that they would never carry in a normal setting, in a traditional setting. Now, they are really vulnerable because they uh, it breaks their their solution you know it breaks them you know they're sent away from their families they don't have all the traditional um, long standing kinesthetic wisdom at hand and now they don't have the modern solutions or semi-solutions at hand either. So now they are worse off than we are. And so I've seen that as well. But if you search for the traditional places that are not yet modernized, that still have their handed down kinesthetic traditions, you know, from where the grandparents are still in the same village as the parents and the children, and the way the kids are getting carried is influenced by these long-standing patterns, then you still see these amazing, functional, beautiful um, carriage and systems in place. It's really something to behold. So in my travels, I'm always seeking these places out and I have to go off the beaten track. I have to go to places where you don't see Westerners at all or hardly at all, and people are still living a more traditional lifestyle. You made some really good points, and it is true. As these tribal populations start to develop some of the bad habits and bad nutrition practices we have here in the Western, more industrialized countries, they their health deteriorates very quickly and they don't have some of those things to help mask some of their problems like we use here. So that's really an interesting point you brought up. And so I'd love to get into some of the practical advice for people because we've been talking about the importance of posture and you've developed a a whole system on this that you've termed the Go Clay Method. And so can you explain to the audience what this is exactly? Yeah, it's a methodology. It's a whole bag of tools and a philosophy and a journey that is crafted for people to get from where they are to where they want to go, architecturally speaking. So if we want to sculpt our bodies to and restore them to what we used to have when we were two years old and what our ancestors used to have and what a few populations still have scattered across the globe, then there is there are many ways to get there. And what the Gokhale method has done is crafted a particularly efficient and effective pathway to make these necessary changes. And this pathway has a lot of characteristics. One is that we use everyday activities as our primary focus, our primary toolkit for how to help people get there. So that's unusual because what's much more common is to give people exercises that are outside their everyday life to strengthen, lengthen, and so on. But what we've discovered is you can use your everyday life activities to be those exercises. So when you bend over, that could be your hamstring stretch as well as your rhomboid strengthening as well as your erector spiny strengthening exercise, your external hip rotator stretch. If you do it well, 
and it's not contrived at all. You know, it turns out that this is the way these traditional societies are getting these strengthening exercises and stretches. And it's not that shocking that we are self-exercising, we are self-stretching, self-strengthening, you know. Um, and so, so we're restoring not only the lengths and strengths of these muscles, but, also, but doing it in a way that is very natural rather than contrived and time-consuming and expensive. So there is some investment in learning, but then you have, you're empowered to be your own uh, healer and have your everyday life become your tool. That becomes, so everyday life becomes your gym and your therapy. I love that. And I find the same holds true with exercise. I really encourage people I work with to get their low level physical activity through the day and not think of your only source of exercise as this time block at the gym. And it really makes sense because a lot of the day to day activities we do, like picking something up off the ground, tying your shoes, you could turn into a functional movement pattern and train your body to do that movement correctly. Totally. So I love what, how does the uh, method you created compare to other methods for treating back pain, things like chiropractic care or rolfing? So when you compare with chiropractic or rolfing, one of the big differences is that those are done to you. And this is something you do to yourself. You know, so it's an education. You are learning um, intellectually, kinesthetically, visually, and that's a big difference with some of the other techniques, you had, um, like Alexander technique, which is something I respect a great deal. But the main tool there is kinesthetic learning, which happens to be a particularly slow way for most people in modern times. You know, we have very much developed our intellects. We have a huge visual cortex. And my reckoning is why not use that? You know, we're carrying it around. We're carrying our big brains around all day. Why not use them? And so one of the big features of the Gokhale method is that it's multi-channel. It looks right. It makes sense. It feels right. And therefore, the changes happen more quickly, and they're also more sustained. Um, now, over time, we keep adding arrows to our quiver. So we have started using technology a great deal. You know, we live in modern times and there are some amazing developments and why not use those as well? So people have their devices and their computers and they can be connected to each other, even in a busy schedule. So our we connect our classmates because part of the issue is to populate the landscape with healthy concepts and terminology and observation um, and pull out the weeds that most of us have in our posture landscape. You know, most people's notions of posture are really flawed. It's about sit up straight, stand up straight, tuck the pelvis, S-shaped spine, a lot of notions that are not only not helpful, but actually counterproductive. So we facilitate for people and teach our teachers to help pull out these weeds, you know, so to speak, and plant some useful verb verbiage and notions 
and images. And so we use technology. We email our students. People who are on our newsletter get every two weeks, they get some really useful uh, education, as well as invitations to our online teleseminars. So we're out there with a lot of free offerings that help educate the general population, because that is our goal, is also to help whole communities develop better posture tools, because people are learning from each other. You know, in the villages, they're copying each other, and they're copying healthy ways. Here in modern times, we're copying each other, slouching in, and thrusting out our chest, and thinking that's good posture, and those are not helpful. So we are trying to seed the entire uh, community and population on the planet, really, with healthy posture um, teachings and concepts and verbiage. And so we've also lately invented uh, a wearable. This took a lot of work and dedication on our part. Five sensors that go on the spine. We use it in our classrooms. And then... Um, a device shows you the shape of your spine. So we help students record the baseline shape of sitting, standing, bending, and they can see this. And then we also mark targets after we have taught them how to sit and how to stand and how to bend. And then they get to practice with those targets so that they learn what body movements make them hit that target wow and they also get to yeah it's pretty wow actually it's totally cutting edge there's nothing like it out there and it's you know business foolish one could say but our dedication is not to maximize profit it has been to really help people make changes as quickly and as if if, um, in as sustained a way as possible so for example all those Um, targets and um, shapes of the spine, those get recorded on the students' profiles, and then they can watch themselves change over time as well. That's so fascinating. And they get to do research with it. Yeah. So it's very cool. Sounds like an amazing invention. And so you mentioned a few common recommendations that are kind of misleading people when it comes to good posture. So I'd love for you to break down for people in the audience what good posture does look like. So one of the key paradigm shifts that people need to make is J-spine over S-spine. Like in modern times, we've come to think of the S-shaped spine as being the right template for the human structure. And I think it's flawed. Um, If you look back in anatomy books, we have a picture of a spine from a 1911 anatomy book. It's in in my book, Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back, and it shows this J-spine as opposed to the modern S-spine that you see in chiropractic charts and anatomy books and so on. And the J-spine makes tons more sense. You know, it has all the upper lumbar discs which are cylindrical in their shape, 
fit into cylindrical spaces, whereas in the S-spine, they're all squished into wedge spaces, which doesn't make any sense and would explain why we tend to have degenerated discs. You know, if that's what we're doing all day, then no wonder we have degenerated discs, arthritic spines, because we're loading the edges of the vertebrae. So it explains, you know, this flawed paradigm of an S-shaped spine explains why it's become normal for people to have arthritic spines, degenerated discs, and back pain. So I'm describing a very different shape, J-spine, and I think it's the right paradigm. I think it's equivalent in importance to when, uh, uh, to saying that the earth is round, not flat. You know, For a long time, we used to think the earth was flat. And it was important to change that paradigm so that we could move forward and have some, a, 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 a predictive template and theory for how we navigate, you know, ships in that case. And in our case, um, furniture and clothing, you know, all our ergonomic chairs, for example, are built to this S-spine, S-shaped spine specification. And I had to design a whole chair to be able to give our students something that I could stand behind, sit behind. Yeah. I mean, people are always asking me, how, I sh how should I change my chair? Because, and I, we used to fit them with towels and um, now, and then we designed a stretch sit cushion to make bad chairs into good chairs and to, um, navigate car seats. But, you know, people are working for many hours a day and to sit in a badly designed chair is just asking too much from the system. And so we finally figured out how to design a really good chair. And so we're proud. We only have about five or six products, but we managed to design a really good chair that helps stretch people's spines and stacks at them and is built to a J-spine J paradigm. Gotcha. And so will this method you created work for everyone or is there some specific types of dysfunction that it tends to be more effective for? So there are a couple of things that are problematic. Like it is an education. And so if people have dementia, for example, then it's difficult to transmit an education if there's... And the other group that I've noticed that has some difficulty are people who are extremely obese. And I mean 500 pounds, you know, not just carrying 20 or 50 extra pounds, you know. Except for those two cases, this is a pretty universally applicable method, you know. Back pain is very democratic. It affects athletes. It affects couch potatoes. It affects older people, younger people. And this method works for everybody, male, female, different levels of activity. It's remarkably universal. So I'd love to dive in more into the actual method and some practical steps people can take. So you've outlined in your work eight steps to a pain-free back. Could you briefly explain what those eight steps are? Yeah. And we've listed them in our book in an order 
that is desirable. So we begin with stretch sitting and stretch lying. And what those methods entail is gentle traction in the back while people are sitting and lying on their back. Yeah. And that is the sim those are the simplest techniques to learn that happen also to be the best first techniques. It's kind of like preparing the clay for a remodel. So before we start moving the parts around, because discs may already be compressed and loaded, because nerves may, might already be impinged, we like to prepare the clay. We like to soften the muscles, lengthen the, the whole spine as a first measure to prepare for the remodel. So that's, and stretch sitting is one of the things that I teach on our free online workshops because it is good for everybody. As long as it's done gently, there's no downside. You know, I don't have to worry about someone has a herniated disc and this might not be good for them. Yeah. As a first measure, it's an excellent first measure as long as it's done gently. And, um, so that's where I like to start people. And, you know, very as a summary, you are coming away from a backrest and you are lengthening your spine in a couple of ways and then hooking yourself back to the backrest, which has some sticky nubs or the stretch sit cushion that we've designed or a frictiony towel can work as well if you have a fabric chair and it'll hold sufficiently the problem with that is it slips around and you know i used to not have any products and was kind of proud to only present an education no product but people would complain the slips the slides and then i would have certain people say come on don't be lazy design something and so that's how i started with the cushion and the chair with stretch lying on the back there's no products necessary we have people kind of prop themselves up on their elbows the back is like a hammock and they're digging in their elbows and piecewise lengthening their back as they unroll onto the bed and then there's some important details about where the pillow goes and pillow under the knees and such and lengthening the neck uh, but the most important part of that is that the back is in gentle traction for at least the first five months, minutes of the night. And then we tell people not to um, discipline themselves for too long and create negative associations, but just create familiarity with that very comfortable position, which turns out to be seductive and people then fall asleep very often. And I very often will hear from a student like, wow, I woke up in the same position I went to sleep in. I'm shocked because I never sleep on my back and I've always found that uncomfortable, but here I was feeling really good. So that's a nice first measure. It often leads to very good results. And then that encourages people to invest a little more time and effort in the other techniques, which include stack sitting. And here the J-spine becomes very important. And we like to use a wedge when people haven't had that uh, pattern in their brains and bodies of having their behinds out behind them and the rest of the spine stacked pretty straight. So the, when I say J-spine, it's kind of like a hockey stick, you know, a modern J. 
where mm-hmm. the behind is lightly angled back and the rest of the spine is relatively straight and stacked. So we teach that in stack sitting, which then opens up to all kinds of sitting, whether you're on a horse or a bench or a stool or on a zafu, a meditation cushion on the floor. Um, and then we also teach stretch lying on the side, which opens people up to being able to sleep comfortably no matter which way they sleep. And that also introduces the concept of the J-spine. And then we go on to standing well, which involves a J-spine and a stacked spine, and the inner corset, which is the natural way to use your abs. So this is very different from what most people are doing under the name of core strength. So I don't use that terminology. Instead of quarreling with what core strength means, we've used another terminology, the inner corset. And this is a natural way that you see people in non-industrial cultures carry weight. You know, So they have a way of engaging a very particular set of deep abdominal and deep back muscles to kind of cinch the body, make it more slender. And if you do that, then that makes you taller because the stuff has to go somewhere. So instead of being kind of squatter, shorter cylinders, they become slenderer, taller cylinders. And now the discs and the nerves are protected from wear and tear and impact. So this is extremely useful and important if someone is running because there's impact or carrying weights, whether it's a suitcase or it's something on their head or a backpack, or if they're in a bumpy bus, or they're going to distort their spine, maybe in a twist in yoga or dance or um, whatever they're doing that requires the body to change its position, the spine to change its position, then that extra length is very important to avoid wear and tear. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and then we teach them hip hinging, which is the natural way of bending with a very flat back, but it, that has to be done very precisely. Kind of flat is not good enough. That can load discs and lead to a lot of problems. So that is not a beginning technique. We like them to have first lengthened and strengthened their back before and reshape their back before they learn hip hinging. And then all along the way, we teach them what I call glide walking, which is really the natural way of walking. Low impact, posterior chain, used a lot. The glutes propel the person forward with every step, and then they land like a hunter-gatherer, very soft. So there's not a rattling of the joints and um, a precipitation of all kinds of arthritic changes and tight muscles kind of in defense. Um, So it's a whole program that progresses through all these natural ways of moving and using the body. And in the process, the person is longer, stronger, reshaped, and much more thriving. That makes total sense. A couple of things you touched on, I'd like to elaborate a little bit more on. One is the sleeping position. I get a ton of questions about this, whether you should sleep on your back or your side, what's better for your posture and your structural alignment long-term. So it sounds based on what you said, there are methods to sleep on your back or your side, as long as you're doing it correctly, that will facilitate good, good structure. Is that correct? Yeah. So as long the main thing is 
how your back is shaped. You want good length and you want good shape. And then it doesn't really matter where you are in space, you know, whether you're um, in a reclining position, sleeping on your couch or on your back, on your side, maybe three quarters. There's even ways to sleep healthily on your belly, but I discourage that for beginners. It takes a little more props and um, good habits in place to do that well. But the main thing is the length and the shape of your spine as you sleep. Good to know. Another question I had for you was when it comes to footwear, you mentioned when you're walking, you teach this method. So it's low impact. And I feel a lot of people kind of veer away from that because we have these padded soles. And so you can walk in a way that's higher impact and not have any repercussions on the bottoms of your feet. So do you recommend people do more barefoot walking or wear a minimalist shoe or any type of specific insole? So that's an interesting question because yes, padded shoes can fool the brain into thinking we're protected and then we might go for a very harsh footfall and actually do more damage than um, if we had if we were barefoot or had a minimalist shoe. But no matter what kind of shoe you're wearing, I like to educate people to land well, to land softly. And it's a matter of using your glutes and in some cases your foot muscles and so on. And if you're doing that, then additional padding in the shoe could be protective. You know, So if you don't use the pad, as a way to get away, try to get away with abusing the body, but you have good habits in place, then I think you can get double advantage from having, you know, given the surfaces we have, which are cement and asphalt and so on. So the best combination is to have excellent form as well as some padding. That's my view. Um, and if you're a hunter-gatherer and you have excellent form and feet that are pristine, a really well-developed musculature and good shape and so on, then it doesn't matter what you're wearing, you know. Um, but if you are a modern Western person, I think the shoe needs, it should depend on how your feet are, how much you know, what sort of surface you're walking on, and how much attention you have to implementing what you know into what you're doing. Got it. And for people listening who may not be suffering from any back pain or any pain in general, for that matter, how, what, what types of other benefits would they get by incorporating these me this method that you teach? Yeah. Well, we've, we've talked about improved physiology, improved mental health and mindset. But there's also improved performance if you're an athlete. If you are glide walking all day and you, every step is a rep, then you are going to be a better athlete. You are going to run faster, jump higher, change direction with more power, etc. You're also going to look a lot better. You know, good posture correlates with improved appearance. You are able to look your best self in addition to being your best self. And so there are all kinds of benefits. Um, you become a better negotiator. You become a better leader. People are reading you differently and they 
And that bounces back and forth. You know, if you have more confidence, people have more confidence in you that reinforces your sense of self and really makes the whole world a more functional place. I think if we all had this combination of being well anchored in ourselves as well as available to the world, we would have a a nicer planet to live on. I couldn't agree more. And so what would you tell people out there who are thinking they're a lost cause or they feel like they've tried everything and there's no hope for them to reverse their chronic back pain? Is it is it ever too late for posture re-education? It, you're never lost cause and you can always improve on what you have. That's not to say that there's a guarantee that you're going to be rid of 100% of your pain. But in my experience, it's a very, very tiny percentage of the population that has some genetic condition or has had a sufficiently damaging accident that obliges them to have some pain ongoing. Yeah. And I mean like 2% or 3%. Yeah, not like Mm -hmm. 85% of the population suffering some kind of back pain bad enough to go see their doctor, which is what the situation is right now. Yeah, so most people, I think, can get rid of all their pain. And very few people will have some pain, but you can always improve on what's going on. Because by improving your posture, you are improving your circulation, you're breathing. And if you have a serious condition that you have to navigate, all the more reason to not have the additional burden of cultural poor posture habits. Of all people, those people need to shed that cultural baggage and have posture work for them instead of against them in addition to what whatever other issues, challenges they might have. So everybody benefits and most people benefit to the point that they completely get rid of their aches and pains and are pleasantly surprised by other benefits like, hey, I don't have my constipation anymore and my periods don't hurt And I feel more vibrant. I have a lot more energy. That was, by the way, was my first experience with this work. Yeah, it's amazing how all these things are interconnected. So by improving your posture, your biomechanics, things can improve in other aspects of your health that you would never expect. So I I really love that you touched on that. And so one thing I want to just do a little bit more elaboration on is the sitting. Because many people have come to associate sitting as a big culprit to back pain and a big problem with our current Work, workplace environments. And so a lot of people are doing these standing desks. But based on what you said, it's not that sitting is inherently bad, but they have to be sitting in the right way, in the right position. So can you go into that in a little more depth? Yes, certainly. And it's not just that they need to be sitting well. It's true that we need to do sitting in a, with moderation. Like just sitting like a lump for eight hours straight is not good for anyone. Yeah. So we have to change it up and we need to do each of the other positions well as well. But, you know, in our modern times, we tend to have fashions and right now it's a fashion. It's to call sitting the new smoking, sitting is what kills you. 
moving heals you, etc. And I think it's gone much, much too far. It used to be that standing was the bad guy. You know, in the days where people were on assembly lines and they were standing all day and they were suffering from varicose veins and other ailments that come from standing too long in one position. That was the culprit, yeah? And so now sitting is the bad guy. And, you know, the, the media tends to hop on trends like this and, you know, make, you have to make headlines. And so I think it's this, you know, sensible point of view is not as splashy, doesn't make as uh, dramatic sound bites. But I think the truth of the matter is that you need to sit well, stand well, move around regularly. I think lying down while you work is a missing piece of the conversation. I think from time to time, people should also recline, give the system a break. And some of the in Silicon Valley, some of the companies have napping pods, <laughs> which I, I strongly support as a good uh, respite, but also a posture reprieve to let all the discs kind of rehydrate and lengthen and so on. So another comment that I have about sitting is that it turns out that hunter-gatherers do a lot of sitting. You know, and there was a recent study on the Hadza um, tribal people who, and they put wearables on them to see how much of the time they were actually sitting. And it turns out to be very similar to how long we sit in modern Western culture. It's like nine hours a day. But wow. what they also have, yeah, it's not well known. And they do just fine with their sitting. Now, it's different kinds of sitting. And I, I think the key feature is they sit well. Not that they're squatting versus sitting on chairs, for example. But they also break it up and they have vigorous activity as part of their daily activity as well like for about two hours a day, they're up and around very actively. So mm -hmm. I think it's that combo that we want to head for. Sit well, also exercise, move around. Um, and then whatever other positions you're using, do those skillfully as well. And that takes an education. <laughs> yeah, that's really the key though, because so many people that I've worked with have developed these, you know, adopted a standing workstation and they're standing incorrectly and they're not resolving a lot of their issues. And at the end of the day, they're still very stationary, <clears throat> you know, yeah. mixing in the movement and making sure you're just modifying the positions you're in and that those positions are correctly, you know, yeah. you're sitting correctly and you're standing correctly and you're moving correctly. I think that's really the key. There's a health, a crowdsourcing website called healthoutcome.org. And they rate walking, like this is crowdsourcing, this is, they've got a huge amount of data, over 165,000 reviews, and they rate walking as one of the least effective measures for lower back pain. It's worsted only by surgery. And it's a really interesting website everybody should know about. Um, Stanford did a study on this website showing that the results correlate very closely with randomized control trials. And there are some new measures that nobody knows about that come to the fore. But when 
you know, if you look at the, how badly people rate walking as a measure, it's a little shocking. Except, you know, to me, who realizes like most people these days have tight psoas muscles. And when they walk, they're yanking on their back and arching their backs. And that's making walking look bad. So it's how they're walking, not that they're walking. That's the big problem. And the missing piece is, you know, an education on how to walk well. And that's what we teach. We teach people how to walk well, sit well, stand well. And now it's all good. And interestingly, on that website, we're the number one rated uh, intervention by an extremely wide margin. Like, and people looking at that data, if there were being scientists, would say, we have a breakthrough here. Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah. That's amazing. And so for people that are sitting for most of their day and they, you know, they understand it is important to get up and to move their bodies and to not sit for really prolonged periods of time, but they do want to sit correctly and they may not have the resources to buy the, you know, chair or pieces of uh, uh, devices that you sell. You mentioned you could put a firm towel and is that going to be placed just along the lower back above the pelvis? Where is that going to be? So not so, it can be placed where a lumbar support would be placed, but if there's space a little higher, under the shoulder blades is what I like, because the point of it is not to reinforce a big lumbar curve, yeah, but rather reduce that curve. So you want to lengthen yourself and attach yourself to the towel, almost like you're a picture hanging from the wall so that you're flattening out your curve and elongating your spine rather than reinforcing the curve and shortening your lumbar spine and squishing all the discs and the nerves with that. So the main difference is how you use that implement. And that's why I say towel or our stretch sit cushion rather than say a piece of foam, which would let you down, you know, literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you need something firm to hook to and that will give you a boost and some gentle traction rather than uh, curve you more than you're curved already. Yeah. And I, I must say, Esther, when I was going through your work prior to this interview, it really blew my mind because I had been taught by so many chiropractors and even in school, you want to bring the curvature back to the spine. And so they'll have you do traction where you're tilting your head back, trying to recurve the, the cervical vertebrae in the neck and yeah. these different strategies. And they even have these devices you put under your neck. Yep. And so yep. I, as I went through it, it was so kind of the opposite of so many things I I've learned. So it was really enlightening. And I'm so glad we can bring this information to more people because it does make sense. You, by having less curvature, you do have more space and it doesn't cause as much compression. It's just from a logical yeah. standpoint. Yeah, I know people go about this in a very theoretical way saying, oh, arches are stronger. So the human spine must have arches, you know, let's go curvy in the cervical spine and in the lumbar spine. And, you know, but I don't think anybody understands the human structure well enough to go about it from an in an abstract way. I think the best we can do right now is to observe people who function well and see what, what it is they're doing. And every kid on the planet and every non-industrial, tribal, indigenous person 
every ancestral statue has this elongated lumbar spine. It's pretty flat. There's not a lot of curve there. So, you know, who do we want to copy? Someone's theory or tried and true people who actually function well? It's in the medical literature. It's very clear on observation. So, and that's a very similar argument to what happens in Western prices work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like there were theories about how you should eat and the food pyramid and this and that. But hey, let's look at how people actually ate and the people who did well and, you know, what works. So just like in diet, you know, which now people are beginning to realize we've had a lot of misunderstanding in, in posture, we got it even worse wrong. You know, it's crazy how badly wrong we got it. Like just about every lay guideline on posture is wrong. You know, S-shaped spine, no, J-shape. Tuck your pelvis, no, leave your pel- leave your behind behind. It's called a behind for a reason. Mm-hmm. Chin up, chest out, wrong. You know, chin up will squish your cervical spine. Chest out will squish your lumbar spine. Um, crunches to strengthen the abs, wrong. Wrong abdominal muscle that we're focusing on there, rectus, that's the least important of all of them. It's the three deeper layers that are more important. So you want to do what I call the inner corset in daily activities or in exercise to strengthen the correct abdominal muscles without compromising the discs and the nerves. See, I think crunches are very well named they crunch the nerves and they crunch the discs <laughs> and they should be thrown out. And in fact, the Canadian Armed Forces has thrown them out. And the U.S. Army, if you have a back problem, you're not allowed to do crunches. So it's getting phased out, but it's still the most popular exos- ab exercise that people do in the lay population. Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought that up. So just to talk a little bit more about the inner corset, what types of abdominal exercises do you like to strengthen the core for people listening who think, man, I've been doing crunches on a regular basis for years. I didn't had no idea. What, what, should I, what should they do instead? Well, so again, the best way to strengthen the inner corset is on the job. So anytime you're carrying something, you would use this very particular set of muscles. And I have my inner chapter five, inner core set. It is a free offering on our website. It's a 15 page PDF. People can download it and read it for free or they buy the book and it's less, it's like in the neighborhood of $20 on Amazon or $30 wherever books are sold. And you can Chapter five, you learn that inner corset and now apply it in er every time that your back would be compromised. Yeah. And that's the best exercise there is. You can also additionally do it. Like I tell people to set their smartphones every hour and maybe do it for a minute as an, you know, just that. Now that's a, a contrived exercise, but you don't have to stop what you're doing. You can do it alongside cutting your vegetables or whatever else mm-hmm. you're doing. Um, and then you can also incorporate it into things like swimming and dancing and running where it's needed. Absolutely. And so yeah. now, now you've got enough possibilities to strengthen. I really do there like... There oh, Go ahead. There are other exercises, you know, in the gym, like anything asymmetric, 
Like if you're pulling a band across you um, and you're remaining symmetric, you're using one half of your obliques. And so, and then you do the other side. And so now you've strengthened some key ingredients off the inner corset. So that's another approach. You can go um, segment by segment of the inner corset and focus on each piece. But I like the on the job approach. I like that too. And I find it's more sustainable, but a lot of people do like to have set routines that they do to help kind of add as a bonus to their day-to-day activities. And so would an exercise like a plank be something that would strengthen the inner corset? Absolutely. So anytime you're preserving the shape of your torso against some external force and in the plank it's gravity you know like that's tending to sag you and you're working against it um that's a good exercise and you know some people like exercise exercise they like Mm -hmm. going to the gyms i actually like going to a gym it's kind of like a modern day piazza to me where you get to observe people milling around. And, you know, if I go to the Y, I get to admire the cancer survivors out there who are so courageously working on what they can work on. And so I like that kind of observational uh, piece of being in a gym. And some people like group exercise classes and so on and so if you like that by all means incorporate the inner corset within those activities but if you don't like those and if you like instead to hike or dance or um you know do any kind of vigorous activity then that's fine too there's lots of opportunity to use the inner corset there That's great to know. And so uh, coming back to the spine curvature, because I just find this so fascinating and I have so many preconceptions from different chiropractors and friends who have taught me otherwise. When people talk about bringing curvature back to that cervical part of the vertebrae up by your neck, uh, they they talk a lot about this text neck where people are tilting their chin towards their chest, looking at their phones way too often throughout the day and how that's removing that natural curvature. Now, do you find that that would then be somewhat helpful by removing that curvature or is it too excessive? No. So I think, you know, when people are doing text neck and so on, the place that suffers the most is the upper thoracic spine. It starts curving forward and becoming rigid. And now a person is kind of stuck with the curve forward and now their head is facing the ground and then they're extending their neck to look out ahead of them. Mm -hmm. So I find that that's the Um, way in which things go wrong. And what we want is to straighten and flatten it all. And in the neck, it's about mobility and lengthening the muscles. And in the thoracic spine, I mean, it's about stability and strength in the muscles. And in the thoracic spine, it's about mobility and rigidity, you know, because it can get rigid in there with these bones that become semi-fused or fused into a, a hunch, a hump. And so, so there, it depends on what's going on there. And I have seen many people come to me from chiropractors who have told them that they have military neck and that they need to get curvature back in there. And sometimes it's a pretty violent approach on how to get it in there, like, you know, hanging your head off the bed and Um, you know, using devices and using manipulations and so on. And what I suggest that they do, I, 
you know, in my book, there are many, many photographs of people with perfectly erect, straight necks, not much curvature to be seen. And that's also true for little kids. And I say, okay, you know, these are people who are carrying large loads on their head all day. They have no arthritic changes in their spine. So how do you explain, you know, that they are so functional and so healthy, no pain, no, uh, you know, uh, changes in their bones and discs and so on, because there is medical literature on this. So, you know, who do you want to copy? Someone has a theory about how your neck should be, or here are these people who have the shape of their neck is very consistently tall and straight. And, you know, you decide who you want to copy. Yeah, that makes and sense. Follow. And so I'm teaching them. Yeah, it's quite eye-opening and shocking for a lot of people that I'm teaching them the opposite of what they've been told before. And what I always tell our students is, Empty your cup, you know, as long as you're training with me, which is not that long. Sometimes one day, we teach a one-day pop-up course with a half-an-hour online follow-up. And I tell them, empty your cup and immerse in what I'm teaching. If you're confused, by all means, ask. You know, we don't, and you know, but we don't want to get hung up in, in theory and debate. Lot to, lot to teach in that day. Mm-hmm. And then, or in our six lesson course that our teachers all over the world teach. And so immerse in it. And then at the end of the course, you can decide what feels right, looks right, makes sense. Keep those parts. And so there isn't, you know, how that's totally reasonable, right? Yeah, that's a great way to go about it and approach things. So let me ask you one more thing, Esther. What is the most difficult aspect for people to change as they learn your method and start to incorporate these eight steps? So the way we have broken it down, it's remarkably doable. <clears throat> I won't say trivial. Some of the steps are not easy, but they're all doable. The people we have the most difficulty with are people who have been heavily trained in some other methodology, like if they have been asked to tuck their pelvis and they are um, trained in walking with their, leading their pelvis like models, modern day models, you know, they lead with their pelvis like the flappers. So then there's a lot of unlearning to do. And but they get, they get it too because the body remembers, you know. So even if it feels strange in the beginning, it feels strangely familiar. Like they used to be that way when they were two years old. So we're not teaching random things. We're teaching natural things that are written into their DNA, that are written into their personal memory, written into their species memory, their historical memory. Their, you know, sometimes I, to make it the passage a little smoother, I ask people to dig up old photographs of their great-grandfather, if that exists, or grandfather, and use that as a reminder uh, as well as an inspiration and a tool to uh, learn a different way. Like, this is my stock. This is how I was supposed to look. And I now know how to get there step by step. 
Well, Esther, I really love your method. I've learned so much from you through your work and through this conversation today. So I really want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And this valuable information is so important for people to hear. Where can people go to connect with you and learn more about your book and your work? The best place is our website, which is quite a rich ecosystem. It has all kinds of free offerings, you know, the PDF of the inner corset, invitations to free online workshop. And it also lists all the offerings of all of our teachers around the world. We have over 50 teachers. These are incredibly dedicated, capable people, all trained personally by me, hand-selected. And they are offering our courses, initial consultations all over the world. So you can type in your zip code and it'll pop up which of the teachers are close to you. And, you know, if there aren't any, you can request a teacher come to you or you can join one of the pop-up courses. I'm going on tour with our one-day course all over the country. Um, So you are sure to be able to find something that suits you. And you can also request that a teacher come to your area. So the website is goclaymethod.com. And that has a funny spelling, G-O-K-H-A-L-E method.com. And you can also look up my book, Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back. And if you, all, if you forget all of that, if you just search Google Esther Posture, or the New York Times called me the posture guru of Silicon Valley, you'll find your way to our website and the book and our resources. So book is a great way to start. Website is the best. And sign up for our newsletter. We don't spam. It's valuable information. We're here on a mission to educate the planet on how to get back to what we used to have. I love it, Esther. I recommend everyone check out these resources. There's so much to learn and so many benefits to be had. So great talking with you, Esther. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening in. You can find the show notes and resources at thrivingwellness.co slash podcast. We encourage you to share your biggest takeaways with us on social media and share the show with your friends and family. If you found this episode valuable, leave us a five-star review. Your feedback helps to support us on our mission to positively impact as many people as we can with this information. Join us for our next episodes where we will be interviewing leading wellness professionals to inspire you in your health journey. Until next time.